Welcome to Challenge on November 2nd, 2017. Great day to be alive. Amen. My name is Stephen Crawford. I'm on staff with Challenge here at USC. Um, I also graduated in 2007 from the University of Arizona. Oh, man. Who said, who booed me? You can all boo me. It's all right. He who lasts, laughs last. How's that go? Okay, Arizona football always sucks, all right? So I never pay any attention to it. But this year we're actually good, so I'm really excited for Saturday. Uh, just want you to know, ordinarily I, I wouldn't say anything about it, but um, we're, we're actually good this year, and I, I think we're going to win. So feel free. Yeah, you can, you can make fun of me as much as you want if we lose. And I won't gloat over you guys if uh, I win. So Much. A lot. I want a lot. For very long. No more than a, a few weeks. So uh, I'm here to continue the series that we've been doing this uh, semester. I feel like I'm kind of like trapped between two, two trees or something. Uh, our series is called Written for Our Instruction. So over the last uh, couple months, we've been looking at passages from the Old Testament, um, specifically looking at the lives of the men and women of the Old Testament, trying to learn uh, what we can from their experiences, their interactions with God. Um, Now, I know that in in the church today, we tend to regard the Old Testament as this uh, confusing, um, rather obscure document that uh, we kind of have to read. Um, We read a New Testament book, and then we got to go back and read an Old Testament book, and then we can get back to the New Testament, which is the really good stuff. But that is not how the men and women uh, historically have seen the Old Testament. Um, We, uh, the Old Testament is an integral part of the Bible because of how it leads inevitably into Jesus. So if the whole Bible is about Jesus Christ, then what comes before him is as important as what comes after him. So we are looking at the lives of these Old Testament figures, not just so that we can, uh, like, Find these moral examples, you know, oh, don't do what this guy did, uh, and do do what this guy did. Right? That, that's, not, that's not the whole point, right? I'm not just going to uh, give you guys, like, a mor- morality lesson tonight. Oh, this person lived a good life, and so you too should live a good life so that you can be blessed by God. Uh, that's not a very Christian message, right? If you, if you know much about Christianity, you know that it's not about doing things so much as it is about trusting in the one who has already done things for us. Amen? Amen. So when we, when we look at the Old Testament and we look at the lives of these men, what we're trying to learn is who did they trust? How did they trust him? Because that God that they trusted is the same God that we trust. And the way that they trusted him is the same way that we are called to trust him with our lives. We want to learn who God is, how he interacted with his people, because we are his people too. And the way that he interacted with them led inevitably to the presentation in the world of his son, Jesus Christ, the transformative event that our own faith looks back to. 
as their faith looked ahead to it, we in our faith look back to it. But it's the same faith, the same trust. If we are to understand how to live lives of trust as we await the day when Christ returns, which is the only significant event in history left. I know there's all these like incredible like historical things happening. It seems like every day, right? I like wake up in the morning and I like go on CNN. I'm like, what happened <laughs> while I was sleeping? <laughs> but really, there's only one significant thing left in all of history, and that is the return of Jesus Christ. Okay, I, none of that stuff I just said is written down here on my notes, um, but let's keep going. Okay, the, uh, our verse for our series, I'll just read really quick. Now, these things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. We are those on whom the end of the ages has come. And so, the faith and lives of these men were recorded so that we may know how to live in anticipation of what God is going to do. So, I, this is my second time speaking. Not, not, not all of you guys might have been here when I spoke last time, but the last time I was like, okay, we, we're all picking these people from the Old Testament, and I've got to pick like the most hipster, obscure person I can possibly think of. Uh, so I picked Jehoiada and Jehosheba, <laughs> two um, famous guys from the Old Testament. And that was fun, right? You, you learned a new... Uh, a new um, well, not, not all of you. It wasn't new for everybody. But you, knew, you learned about this guy you might not know about. Well, I was like, how, how can I top Jehoiada and Jehosheba? Should I talk about O Holy Bama? It's a real guy in the Bible. <laughs> o Holy Bama. Uh, no, I, I decided I couldn't really top it. So we're going to talk about David and Goliath. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, but since I can't probably uh, teach you a new story from the Old Testament, I thought I would teach you a new word instead. Um, I, some of you might know this word, but uh, probably for a lot of you, you won't know it. The word is laconic. Anyone, anyone know what the, the definition of the word laconic is? Yes, it's a great old word. A new word. Laconic, in its strictest sense, means a person or thing that comes from the region of Laconia. Which is in ancient Greece, where the city of Sparta was. So uh, the Spartans were also called uh, the Laconians. Um, And so things that have to do with them were referred to as laconic. Now, uh, the word as we use it today uh, refers to a person who um, does not speak very much. But when he does speak, he speaks words of great significance. A quiet man who, when they speak... You, you listen to them. And the reason for this is this is kind of like the reputation that the Spartans had. They weren't very loquacious. They didn't speak a lot. Uh, but when they spoke, it tended to be something really significant. For example, let me, let me give you an example of this. Um, when uh, Philip II of Macedon was uh, conquering all the Greek states, he conquered most of the Greek states, and he was about to enter into Laconia and conquer the Spartans too. But before he did, he sent them a message. And he said this. He said, you are advised to submit... Without further delay, for if I bring my army into your land, I will destroy your farms, slay your people, and raise your city. This is what uh, Philip said to 
the Laconians of Sparta. And the Spartans sent back a reply. And it was one word. If. <laughs> the only thing they said, if. Philip II of Macedon did not invade Sparta. Now, of course, the Spartans are famous in pop culture um, because they're considered, like, the most awesome warriors historically, right? They made a movie recently about it, uh, 300. Uh, these were like, yeah, have you heard of that movie, 300? Recently. I mean, you know, in, in the last 20 years? I don't know. I actually, I have, I have not seen 300. Um, but I, I enjoy reading um, ancient stories about the Greeks and everything. So I, I know the story of 300. But the Laconians were famous for their incredible courage in battle, right? They were the, the warriors that could not be moved. And they spit on superior forces because they knew that each individual Spartan was worth hundreds, if not thousands, of Eastern Persian or other Greek state soldiers. This was the Spartan ethos. They were the courageous men of history. So that is one conception of courage that because of, uh, you know, maybe 300 and just because of the way Greeks dominate our um, cultural memory has kind of stuck. When we define courage, it's the, the immovable warrior confident in his own power to defy whatever would come to attack him. That is courage. Another understanding of courage. I've been, I've been reading lately uh, on Audible this book uh, biography that just came out of Ulysses S. Grant. Incredible book. 48 hours long on Audible. Uh, but if you know my listening habits on Audible, you know that I'm going to listen to it in 16 hours because I have it on triple speed. <laughs> so I'm about, I'm about two-thirds of the way through this, and uh, it's absolutely incredible. Uh, and Grant, what, uh, Grant was really famous for his battlefield courage um, because people would, would notice that he would, he would just kind of um, walk up in, uh, in the midst of, like, sniper fire. There'd be, like, bullets whizzing past his head, and he would just kind of, like, nonchalantly walking there. Uh, one time he was um, talking to one of his adjuvants, one of his, like, attendants, and a cannibal knocked the guy's head off just as he was talking to him. And um, the men that were around him said he didn't, he didn't flinch. He just, like, turned to the guy that had come with him and asked him to finish the report that he was giving. So that was Grant, just completely un unafraid um, in the midst of battle, uh, heedless of the danger that was surrounding him. That's another, another conception of courage, this kind of fearlessness in the face of, of imminent danger. <clears throat> another conception of courage is, uh, I, I had a whole story for this one too, but I won't, I, I'm already <laughs> behind, so I won't tell it. But... Uh, Another conception of courage is this kind of ins temporary insanity that causes you to, in the face of overwhelming odds, just do something, okay? So you're, you're, uh, you're facing, like, a, a big army, and there's only three of you, and you just are like, ah, and you run at them, and, uh, you know, you miraculously somehow defeat them because they all get scared. There's just three of you, and they run away. That actually happened, um, not a little bit exaggerated version of it, but that also happened during the biography of Grant during a specific battle, the Battle of Missionary Ridge. Uh, so these, that's another conception of courage, a kind of like temporary insanity that causes you to do something that's incredibly risky, um, but it works. Okay? 
These are all, uh, like, I think, contemporary definitions of uh, courage, understandings of courage that are within our cultural uh, moment right now. Uh, and so what we are coming up against then is what we want to look at is a biblical Christian understanding of courage. If I asked you, what is courage? The definition that you would give, the understanding of it that you would give to me, should be, ideally, from the Bible. Now, we're all familiar with the story of David and Goliath. And uh, I've chosen it because I think it's a supreme story, one of the supreme stories about courage in the Old Testament. But I'm hoping, I'm hoping that the definitions I have given you, you will see how true Christian courage, the sort of courageous trust that David shows, is not, not like those other things. It is something different. <clears throat> okay, if you want to open your Bibles to uh, 1 Samuel 17, you can follow along with me as I read. This is a, a bit of an extended passage. So, you know, it's a good, it's a good story, though. I'm sure that you've um, read it before, but try and listen to it anew. Look for things as I read that maybe you haven't seen in this story before. <clears throat> Let me read. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sukkot, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sukkot and Azekah in Ephesdamim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah. And drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side. And the Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath. Whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. And he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was about 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs. And a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shema. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Don't you just love these little details? Take these ten cheeses. I won't be coming up with any spiritual significance for that. 
Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the men, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and will give him his daughter, and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine, and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? Good reaction, I think. And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as, he, as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head, and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, and chose five smooth stones from the brook, and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near David, with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. And all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into my hand. 
When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly to the battle lines to meet the Philistines. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank, the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sherim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Before we go in, let me pray. Jesus, thank you for your word here. As we look at it, we want to have our eyes opened to see what you have for us in it. We want to learn from you. Lord, it is your word. You spoke this. You inspired it. Lord, according to the inspiration of your spirit, was it written and recorded for us? Lord, we need your help in understanding it rightly. Please guide us as we go into your word together. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. As we uh, take a look at this text, let's start with, next slide, the main characters. Okay, I'm going to identify three main characters. It won't be super surprising. It's not going to be those dummy brothers of David that like give him crap when he comes up to uh, see the, the battle there. The first main character is Saul. Who is Saul? Saul is the king of Israel, anointed by Samuel, chosen by God. When he was chosen, he was looking for his lost donkeys. True story. He was wandering around. He had lost his donkeys. He was looking for them. And he came upon Samuel, and God told Samuel to anoint him as king. So he did it. It was just him and one of his servants. Uh, so it, it wasn't superficial if Saul had gone down the mountain and said, Hey, I, I just became king. It might not have been uh, accepted. So Samuel uh, gathered the whole host of Israel together, um, and he uh, did this whole weird process of choosing who it was going to be. Uh, and uh, it was like a, a kind of like a, a lottery almost. And it was like we pick, okay, this tribe and then this clan and then this family. Um, and it just kept getting narrowed down, down to Saul's family. And finally it was like, okay, who from Saul's family is going to be the king? Who are we going to choose? And uh, they couldn't figure it out because Saul, as it turns out, was hiding amongst the baggage. So it was kind of an inauspicious beginning for Saul's reign. But the one thing that was, partic- well, that was uh, obvious about Saul was that he looked like a king. He was a head taller than all the other men in Israel. He was a, like a large, warrior-looking fellow, appropriate for a king of um, the sort of culture and society that Israel was. So he was chosen. Uh, he starts out okay. He does a couple good things. Very quickly, he starts doing bad things, and God rejects him. So at this point, God has rejected Saul and moved on from him. Because Saul has not shown that he trusts God, that he is willing to submit to the authority of God, and that he is willing to obey God. And all those things, Saul has shown himself to be lacking. He has been rejected as king. And of course, our, our picture of him here is not super attractive, right? What, what do we see Saul doing? Goliath comes out. He does his challenge. And Saul is scared. He's terrified, right? 
Well, look at, at why he's terrified. But this is the picture that we have of Saul. He and his men, terrified, hiding on this mountain, hoping that something is going to happen. Because Goliath has now come out for 40 days straight and issued his challenge. <clears throat> Second character, David. Pretty obvious. This is the story of David and Goliath. So David is our second character. Who is David? At this point, David is uh, still young, right? When, when uh, Goliath looks at him, it says he despised him, disdained him, because he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome. Now, that word handsome there, it doesn't mean like uh, Goliath was like, well, I hate this guy, but I got to admit he's good looking. Uh, <laughs> handsome just referred to the, the fact that his features had not been weathered and aged and scarred by, you know, experience. So think like baby-faced is what, what he says, okay? So he's ruddy and, and baby-faced. He looks like a, you know, like a freshman in college. <laughs> I don't know. Trying to make it, make it breathe for you college students here, live with college students, right? David is young. Now, however, at this point, he's already been anointed king. However, by contrast to Saul, David doesn't look the part. In fact, as, uh, when, when Samuel anoints David as king, he first tries to anoint all of his older brothers as king because they look more like kings than David does. So one will come in, and uh, he'll be like, oh, this is the one that God sent me to anoint. And then God will be like, no, that's not it. He does that like seven times, and then finally the youngest, this like young man, doesn't look like a king at all, comes in, and that's the one. So that's our guy, David, right? He's been a shepherd in the field taking care of sheep. It's interesting, isn't it, that Saul was uh, looking for his lost donkeys and David is coming from his sheep. I don't know. I won't do anything with that today, but uh, it is interesting. Uh, what does David have um, beside this? Well, David is in the line of Judah. He is the great-grandson. If you remember uh, a couple weeks back, maybe a couple months back, uh, we talked about Ruth and Boaz. So David is the great-grandson of Ruth and Boaz. So he's got kind of like a legacy of faithful men in his past. And of course, we all know the story about David, where he's going. He's going to be the supreme king of Israel, the, the king that is such a great king that he's the king by which all the kings that come after him are measured. And in fact, from his descendants, from his line, eventually, about a thousand years later, Jesus Christ is going to be born. Jesus is the son of David. <clears throat> then we got our third guy, Goliath of Gath. Goliath is a Philistine. The Philistines, uh, without boring you with too many details, were a Mediterranean people that had recently arrived on the coastal strip of modern-day Gaza, the Gaza Strip. That's where these Philistines were hanging out, right on the uh, Mediterranean Ocean. Um, they had invaded and kind of intermixed with some Canaanite people that were already there. Uh, <clears throat> they had a couple things uh, about them that the Israelites didn't like. For one thing, they were pagans. They worshipped pagan gods. Uh, another thing is that they had technology that Israel lacked. So it's not like uh, a small thing that the text talks about all this bronze that Goliath has. You, you notice it says like eight times he had a bronze this and a bronze that. Well, bronze technology... Was, it was not something that Israelites had access to. That's why they kept beating the Israelites, because they had better technology. Uh, and then um, the third thing that they had is that they had intermarried with this Canaanite people um, that were descended from another group of people called the Anakites. And the Anakites 
were big old boys. They were tall. This is what, what they were known for. They were very, very big. And Goliath seems to have been uh, inherited a lot of those genes from that family. Goliath is massive. Now, the text says that he's six cubits and a span. <laughs> six cubits and a span, mind you. Um, there's been many attempts to um, define exactly how tall that is, uh, but we don't need to. It's just enough to know he was tall. Very, very tall, very, very big. Bigger than Saul, bigger than any warrior among the Israelites. He was massive. And this guy was coming out every day, and he was looking at himself, and he was looking at these Israelites, and he was saying, come and fight me. I defy you to try and defeat me. Okay, those are our characters. Now let's, let's go in a little bit and look at that challenge that Goliath is, is, is um, issuing and look at the reactions that two different people give to it. Okay, so as Goliath comes out and defies... You can go to the next... Yeah, okay, good. When Goliath comes out and he defies the armies of Israel, he's doing something there that is more significant than just an act of bravado. You know, this isn't just me standing up here and saying, Arizona's going to win on Saturday night. There's something be- behind that that is more significant. Because these pre-modern people universally believed that it was the superiority of the gods that they worshipped that determined the outcome of the battle. So the The conflict between Philistine and Israel is not just a conflict between armies or technologies or warriors, but a spiritual battle. Understood that way. The Philistine is saying, your God that you boast in so much is not able to help you fight me. Look at me. You think your God will aid you in fighting me? And what do Saul and the Israelites say in response? No. (laughs) We don't think he will. (laughs) And they hide. Their faith, their trust is gone. It's missing. That is what makes it so significant when David, this ruddy and handsome youth, baby-faced guy, so young that he hasn't even been thought worthy of being sent yet into the armies. He's, he's stayed back behind to take care of the sheep. And now his dad is using him to send ten cheeses to the commander of the army. This is the guy, right? He's got, he's got an armful of cheeses. <laughs> and what happens? He hears the Philistine and instantly, instantly he knows My God is being defied by this man. The God that I worship, the God of our people, the God who led us out of Egypt, who conquered this land for us, this Philistine is daring to suggest that that God is gone and absent and will not help us any longer in battle. Who is he to defy our God? 
David alone responds in that way. Let's look next at the contenders. Is that what's next? Yes, the contenders. Now, I want you to understand here what it is that gives confidence to these three people. Goliath, Saul, and David. Now, uh, it's not really apparent to our uh, modern ears, but the description of Goliath is highly unusual. If you look at the introduction of every other character in the Old Testament, they'll be introduced with a sentence, maybe two sentences. Very bare description. But when Goliath is introduced... There's line after line, detailed description of him. Of his height, of his power, of the armor that he has on. This is intentional. What the author is trying to uh, convey to us is that here stands a, a warrior who by every earthly, by every worldly, by every human calculation cannot be surpassed. By strength, by size, by tools, by armor, by weapons. No earthly power can stand against that man. And Goliath knows that. What gives him confidence? It's not like some insane courage for him, right? He walks out to the battlefield. He looks at himself, nine feet tall, or however tall he was. looks at himself, nine feet tall, with all his bronze and his sword and his spear. And then he looks at the Israelites, and they're not that big. Some of them don't have swords. They might have rudimentary battle technology. Can you see why he is confident? By every human calculation, the courage that he has is a courage born out of human wisdom. What about Saul? What sort of calculations does Saul make? I would argue that the courage that Saul has is the same as Goliath. The calculations that he makes are the same. If Goliath looks at himself and then looks at the army of the Israelites and has courage, Saul does the same thing. He looks at himself. He looks at Goliath. He says, crop. (laughs) He lacks courage. Because by every human calculation, that is a wise action. Yeah? If you're walking on campus alone, and a massive man with a gun starts running at you, you should run away. (laughs) Look at yourself. I don't have a gun. I'm not very tall. (laughs) That is what goes through Saul's mind. And we, we see that when David steps forward. Because what is the first thing that Saul tries to do? He tries to put armor on him, right? Saul probably was the, one of the few men uh, in that entire army that actually had armor. Any sort of protection. So he takes his armor and he tries to give it to David. Because he looked at Goliath, he looks at David. And he's like, well, I, I heard that God's with you, so I... I assume guys can do something, but we better give you all the help we can. <laughs> Take this armor. 
What's David's calculation, though? Does David act in wisdom? There's a great story of the prophet Elisha and his servant in 2 Kings. Uh, And an, an army of Syrians had come to attack and kill the prophet Elisha. And they had surrounded the the house that he was in. And his servant came to them, came to Elisha, and said, Elisha, we're surrounded. Why aren't you scared? And Elisha prays. And says, open the eyes of my servant. And his servant goes back out and looks outside. And surrounding the Syrian army was a far, uh, vastly superior in number army of heavenly angels. Previously invisible, but now because his eyes had been opened by the prayer of Elisha, he saw them. Human wisdom says fear that situation, but divine wisdom, knowledge of God and his character, trust in the superior power that God has, produces a different sort of calculation and a different sort of wisdom. Is David wise in fighting Goliath? Yes. Because the power of the one who goes with him, whose battle it is, and who has been defied by Goliath, whose glory and power and honor is being questioned by this man, he fights with David. And his power is so far surpassing that that Philistine man, that the true spiritual calculations and wisdom gives David a courage that is real and spiritual, a trust in who God is. And so, the battle. What happens? I've heard lots of interpretations of this you know, that David gets lucky or, you know, the sling was a a new technology that the Philistines didn't know about or something like that. Okay, maybe, maybe. Whatever happened, this dude who was nine feet tall and had covered with bronze armor is killed by like a young looking guy with no armor at all who just has a sling and five rocks. By the way, He only used one of those five rocks. (laughs) Why? Because the battle is the Lord's. That is true courage. Okay. What, What are our lessons? I got three lessons. Lesson number one. David did not take some crazy risk, right? He wasn't like... What's going to be done for the man who defeats this Goliath? Oh, it's worth the risk. I can get rich. I'm going to go for it. Ah! Oh, dang, I got it. David is the only one in the situation that acts in wisdom. The only one. He's the only one that understands the world as it is. It was Goliath who took the risk. A foolish risk. 
in opposing the God who created all things. Number two, lesson number two. Saul and Goliath both made fundamental mistakes. What were their mistakes? They looked at themselves. They trusted themselves. Goliath was strong and powerful, and so he had courage. Saul was weak, and so he lacked courage. Neither of them could see things as they really were. Third, courage is required in our walk with God. Now, we're going to um, define this here. What is courage? As we've seen, courage is inseparable from trust. When Jesus talks to his disciples, he says, uh, Blessed are your eyes because they see. Now, that's a metaphorical expression. He's not saying that literally his disciples saw like new colors or something like that or they could see all the angels and no one else could. What it meant was the disciples who were blessed had been given by God the privilege of understanding the world as it is. Because they knew God and they trusted God. Courage is based on a promise that God gives to his people. David had courage because he trusted that God would act for him. Because he belonged to God. Because God had taken him as his own. Because the Israelite people were chosen by God. They belonged to him. He had covenanted with them. Because they belonged to him. God was for them. This covenant that existed between Israel and God was renewed at the cross of Christ. This covenant where God takes us as his people is confirmed with the blood of Jesus. An unbreakable promise. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a Christian, if you belong to him through the holy covenant, that he is for you and with you. And that, that is the source of the courage that we have. So, how do we have this courageous trust? Oh, they're already there. Okay, see things he's got to trust in the promise of the gospel. And then last, act worshipfully and obediently. <clears throat> the gospel promise of his covenant with us is the foundation of all actions that we take. That is the source of courage to identify what God has called us to and what he is calling us to and what he intends for us in our future. To believe in those things and then to act on the basis of them in spite 
in spite of the worldly calculations that attack us and assault us. The sort of fears that Saul was uh, subject to came because he understood the world without reference to God. And those same sort of obstacles, those same sort of enemies, still exist today in our lives. Same courage is required, as David showed, because the same God has made the same covenant with you. This is real courage. I'll pray. Jesus, thank you for this word. Thank you for this story. Thank you for the example of David. God, I pray that we would learn from it. Not so that we can um, make some sort of crazy, bold action, Lord. But that we can learn that you are for us and with us. And that we can entrust ourselves to you. And that the foundation of our courage is in you, Lord. And in the spirit that is in us. Lord, let us trust you as your people. In your name we pray. Amen.